Hi, Smarties. Today, we're welcoming Annie Mori from PlaySense in Redondo Beach, California. She is an occupational therapist, and today you'll hear a fascinating conversation that digs much deeper than quote-unquote regular OT-related conversations. You'll hear all about the systems that need to integrate correctly before learning can take place. Annie also talks to us about the differences between sensory meltdowns and tantrums. Occupational therapy is a complementary professional that can be a critical part of the progress that we, as educational therapists, want our learners to make. You'll also hear how Annie shares our fundamental belief that when kids can do something, they do. And if they aren't doing what they quote-unquote should be, there's a reason why. Before we get to it, if you are new here, we welcome you. We encourage you to look at our website, www.learnsmarterpodcast.com, and join our Facebook group, Smarties of the Learn Smarter Podcast. And by the way, if you've been with us for a while, thank you so much, and definitely go join our Facebook group. We can't wait for you to hear this one. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer you have to learn smarter the educational therapy podcast hi smarties welcome to episode 81 of learn smarter the educational therapy podcast i'm stephanie pitts and i'm rachel cap and today we're excited to welcome annie mori to our podcast annie is an occupational therapist and she owns PlaySense in redondo beach and we're so happy to have her here and learn from her welcome thank you so i'm really excited about this because it's something so different and outside of what we do and i think for a lot of people a lot of parents a lot of kids struggle with things that you help with and most parents and teachers they don't even realize all the things that you do so I'm really excited to hear what it is so in a brief overview I guess what can you tell us about OT occupational therapy (laughs) so occupational therapy in a nutshell is that we really look at what occupies a person's time and in my case I'm looking at children or young adults and looking at how they participate and engage in their daily activities. A lot of people know us as kind of the handwriting people. That's one activity. There's, you know, things like getting dressed, having a meal, playing with your friends on the playground, sitting in the lunchroom, sitting in a classroom, paying attention and learning, and all those pieces of activities that children do, and all those activities are so important for their developing brains and their bodies that support their learning. And as an occupational therapist, I don't just look at the tasks or the activities that they have to do, but I'm looking at what underlies it, what barriers might be preventing that. Is it strength? Is it coordination? Is it sensory integration? Uh, What are those pieces that are not coming together for them that are impacting their participation and engagement? So Annie, my background was that I was a preschool teacher and we used to make the referral for occupational therapy and speech therapy a lot. How do you know when it's appropriate to make the referral to an occupational therapist? And I'm particularly interested, I'd love for you to go over like preschool age kids, but I'd love to learn more about when the referral would be appropriate also for an elementary age student or higher. Okay, well, let's start with the preschool kids. So for those kiddos, I'm really looking at when they're struggling with their participation in preschool. So a lot of 
preschools are very developmental and they're just putting centers out. And those kids that are really struggling with some of the centers tend to just not go to those centers. Yep. And so those are the kids that I'm really interested in. Why aren't they going to these fun developmental centers? That, I mean, preschool's mm-hmm. fun. And so why aren't they attending those things? The kids that are a little rough with their peers, kids that are biting frequently and not really learning from the coaching that they're getting about biting or being aggressive with other kids. Those kids that are struggling to pick up on the teaching that they're receiving and that they have to continually be retaught the same skill, behavior, but what be it, that tells me that they're not getting the right feedback Mm -hmm. internally to help take that on and learn from it. So those are our preschoolers. They're also with the preschoolers, the kids that aren't manipulating objects. They're not holding pencils. They're having trouble cutting, coloring, those kinds of things too. And then for our older kids, so let's say kindergarten through second grade, those kids I feel like kind of fly under the radar for a while because those grades are pretty forgiving for wigglers and movers. Kids are just learning to handwrite. All kinds of skill levels are entering kindergarten. So things are a little bit more forgiving. But it's those kids that aren't really picking it up and moving forward as quickly as their peers that we should really be watching. The ones that are frustrated or crying when they come home from school, homework is hard. Even into like November, December, homework is still challenging, frustration, crying. I want to know what's going on there. And of course, there are those kids who have the poor grasp, who aren't sitting still, all those wiggly kids, all that stuff. And then we have our third grade through fifth graders. And I would say those are the ones that are really struggling with writing because the writing kind of increases, mm-hmm. right? The expectation really increases at that point. I think they come to us mostly because they have poor penmanship, Mm -hmm, but really mm -hmm. that poor penmanship is a symptom of something that could be a little bit bigger. By the time they're in third grade, I would say just teaching a child how to form their letters is not going to help them. There's often more issues around spatial skills. They probably are struggling with lining up letters, getting their letters the right size and shape, getting them on the line. And then this heavy language component comes in with writing Mm -hmm. and everything kind of falls apart. So even if those kids looked okay with writing in first and second grade, third grade, it starts to fall apart. It's probably because the demand has increased now. Mm -hmm. We talk about that all the time on the podcast that we get a lot of calls from third and fourth grade parents. Mm -hmm. Me Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. The demand has increased. And I think those early grades are just super forgiving and People are kind of holding this wait and see kind of attitude. Grow out of it attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like as a therapist, we always make changes. That's not a problem. But as a child gets older, there's now habits and more emotional issues that have been laid down around these things. Mm -hmm. So we have to work through that as well Mm -hmm. to get to the real work. But for those older kids, like I said, handwriting is sometimes just a symptom of something else. And what we're looking at is what underlies this poor handwriting. And oftentimes when I'm talking to families, I'm asking them questions like, well, what's their balance like? How do they hold a utensil at dinner? What is mealtime like? How is it getting out the door? Do they get themselves dressed on their own? Can they follow multiple step directions? What are they like in sports? Can they sit still? I'm just asking all kinds of different questions to try and like tease out, is there something bigger going on just with their body as a whole that's kind of trickled down to their fingers for handwriting? 
And really when a child's body isn't ready to learn, they can't do much else. They have to focus on their body. They can't focus as much on learning. And so when those resources are taken up, then they look like they're inattentive, uninterested, they're frustrated because they have to focus on something that's not what they're expected to focus on. Kids with ADHD, they're exhausting so much energy mm-hmm. just trying to follow along. Then the learning doesn't come in. They're not able to receive new information because they're exhausted. Yeah. And it's hard. Yeah. They're holding it together and they're putting their resources to something else that's not learning. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what penmanship, what is it a symptom of? I'm sure it can go in a myriad of ways, but a couple examples. Yeah. When I get a kid who comes in with penmanship issues, first I want to see a narrative sample written at home or at school. I see them write in my clinic with me, but honestly, when a child is writing with me, they're giving me their best. So I'm not seeing their day-to-day work. Right. So I ask for a sample from school. I ask for a sample of a worksheet. I ask for a drawing and something that they've done in class mostly because I think that's where I get a true picture of what their performance is, what their participation is. Then I look at that and a lot of those kids, they either have very simple drawings. So there could be like a really visual motor issue And then I want to know more about what is this visual motor issue. Is there a true perceptual issue? Are they seeing what they're supposed to see? Mm -hmm. And sometimes these are our kids with reading issues, right? They're really having a hard time decoding. Even early on, they weren't recognizing letters very easily. Sometimes there are kids with dyslexia. So I want to make sure that they're seeing what they're seeing. So I'm going to be assessing their visual perception. And then I want to know what their motor skills are like. So I'm going to be assessing their grasp, their strength and their postural skills. Because if you can't hold your body up, you're not going to hold a pencil very easily. And your muscles of your hands are not going to be free to really make those fine motions for handwriting. Mm. And then I want to know how those two connect. Does the visual information get translated into motor information? And does that work for a child? Then I can see that in drawings, like replicating drawings, copying written words, and that kind of stuff. And then I also want to understand more about their sensory functions, because there's a lot of underlying sensory functions that go into a lot of things, but handwriting, for one thing that I think is kind of a big issue for a lot of families. So I look at a few sensory systems that underlie that. And one big one is your vestibular system, which is your inner ear. Most of us know it as our sense of balance, but it's really crucial in developing spatial awareness first in our body. And if we don't have a good sense of our body in space, these are our kids that bump into things, they're a little bit clumsy, kind of are struggling just to kind of know where they are in big open spaces, prefer to be like in smaller spaces, do better in smaller spaces. They tend to have poor spatial abilities. And when you can't manage three-dimensional space, then you have to do a two-dimensional space when you're writing. And these are the kids that have the poor spacing between letters. You know, their words and their sentences all look like one big word. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All kind of runs together or they get crammed together or it's uneven. So they're not seeing those spaces, the negative space. It's kind of invisible and they don't have a good sense of that. And then it also affects the height of the letters and their ability to get them on a line. 
So I want to look at their vestibular system. I also want to look at their proprioceptive system, which is their muscles and joints Mm -hmm. and their ability to use accurate force. So discriminate pressure of their pencil. So we see those kids that push really hard or don't push hard enough, right? Mm -hmm. So can they discriminate how hard to push? And do they know how to position their fingers on a tool? Can they hold a pencil? And these are the kids that consistently have a pencil grasp. And when they take the pencil grasp, nothing improves. Just the pencil grip is what really is making the difference for the child, but the child hasn't gotten better themselves. So these are kids that need to really work on learning their joint position and being aware of joint position. That is one of the smaller symptoms. In a whole body situation, these are kids that position themselves awkwardly in chairs. Again, they're also clumsy. They bump into things. So the sensory systems work together. They don't work in isolation. So if one isn't working well, the other one has to kind of pick up the job and it's doing a job it's not really designed to do. So those kids that also are clumsy who have poor vestibular functions, but they also have poor proprioceptive functions. And then the last thing I'm looking at is their sense of touch. Because if you cannot feel something in your hand accurately, how are you going to make those small adjustments on how you move your pencil? around your hand to flip it, to erase it, to hold the pencil accurately, and then just to make those little adjustments when you're trying to write. So writing really is a kinesthetic process, and kinesthesia is your muscles and joints, and then also your sense of touch is really important too. And if those two things aren't working well, it's going to be really hard to use a tool. Hmm. So we'll also see that those kids have a hard time with scissors. They probably don't do well with utensils. They struggle to manage fasteners. Kind of a lot of those pieces underlie that as well. Yeah, they're the ones that had trouble tying their shoes, Mm -hmm. the ones that write their letters from bottom to top rather than top to bottom. Right. Yeah. I'm very fascinated by all this stuff. Right. I was just talking to a mom, actually. What about a kid that is afraid to try riding a bike? Yeah. So that's, again, a sensory function. And I look at all those underlying sensory systems that I just mentioned for how they integrate to support postural control Mm -hmm. and postural stability. And so if you don't have very good balance, but core balance and static balance. So a lot of the kids I see, a lot of the parents say, oh, they have great balance, but they have great balance when they're moving. But when they're sitting still or standing still, that's when the balance falls apart. These are the kids that get in trouble standing in line. Uh, These are the kids that fall out of their chair. These are their wiggly kids. They could be good at sports. Mm-hmm. but not, oh, this is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And bike riding is a great activity, but it's super slow while you're learning. And those are kids that need to move fast. So that vestibular system, it's on all the time for most of us, and it detects the most subtle movements. But for a lot of the kids that we see in our clinic, it's not working very well when they're still. Hmm. So one thing that's kind of a mind stretch that I think is interesting is This is also the sensory system that helps to keep you laying in bed at night. It keeps you from falling out of bed. Oh. Oh. Yeah. It detects where your body is in space while you're asleep. So sometimes these are kids that are slow to start in the morning because that vestibular system hasn't had a lot of work, the level of intensity that they need. So when they wake up in the morning, they're like kind of discombobulated and they need a little bit more to get themselves going. I'm just taking it all in. <laughs> this stuff fascinates me, honestly. Wow. Okay. So I want to go into sensory processing versus sensory integration. 
because I know that you are very big on the sensory integration. And I know some about sensory processing just because I have some of my own sensory processing issues. <laughs> so yeah, I know that you've got your own definition. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I don't know if it's my own definition, but you know, the founder of the sensory integration theory, Dr. Jean Ayers, you know, felt very strongly that as occupational therapists, we are very interested in the integration of sensation for use. And that's what sensory integration is. It's all of our senses coming together, integrating, and us being able to put them to use. And if we're not using them, then I wouldn't have a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm doing is I'm looking at how these sensory systems come together and produce balance, coordination, spatial skills, and a lot of other things for us to be able to do our everyday activities and for kids to be able to sit in a classroom and have a body that's prepared to learn and produce what they've learned. So in my mind, the way I understand it and apply it is that the integration of the senses is really what I'm working on. And that's what my therapy is about is I'm giving kids more intense sensory input, but pairing that with the integrated functions that they need. So if balance is an issue, then I'm working on that balance um, while I'm giving them a lot of swinging and climbing and all kinds of things. I'm challenging all of that. Sensory processing is really the information that's coming in. It's how we're processing that information. It's not necessarily how we're integrating it. Some of us might understand it more as like sensory reactivity and sensory reactivity is definitely something that I work on as well. It's part of that sensory integration theory that was developed years ago by Dr. A. Ears. And sensory reactivity is our reaction to sensation. It's actually not an issue with the sensory systems. It's an issue with more of a regulatory function of the brain that acts on the sensory systems when our brain correctly or incorrectly perceives us to be in danger. And so it turns on our sensory systems to alert ourselves to danger as a protective mechanism. So for some of our kids, their nervous system is in such a state of stress because of the efforts that they're putting forth that they are reactive to sensations. These are kids that cover their ears, that don't like the way their clothes feel, don't want Play-Doh or sticky stuff on their hands, are picky eaters. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Some kids, they really just are reactive and we see that and a lot of kids that have regulatory disorders. But we also see that kids that are putting forth a lot of effort because their bodies are working just that much harder are also in states of stress and they are more reactive because of it. Hmm. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I'm thinking about like the kids that, you know, are really reactive to the vacuum or to when the fire alarm goes off at school. I had a kid in my class when I was teaching fourth grade, and if the fire alarm went off, he went into full-blown meltdown, mm -hmm. and it was very hard and scary for him, and makes sense. Yeah, and really, don't get me wrong. There are kids that reactivity is their primary issue, mm -hmm. and that we do address by calming the nervous system and working with them to identify you know, what the stressors are and like what in the environment is bothering them and giving them tools and strategies to help manage themselves, but also making a change in the nervous system to get their state of arousal down so that they're not so reactive. Yeah. How do you do that? I mean, I know there's not an easy answer, but what does that look like? <laughs> yeah. Every child's different. Of course. Yeah. You know, so the standard 
relaxation tools that we all know. Think of what you do for an infant that's upset, right? You swaddle them. So you give them deep pressure. You give them slow rhythmical rocking. For some massage, which is deep pressure, again, that helps. Uh, You lower down the lights. You cut out the sound or change the sound. So you just decrease. You dampen everything to try and just relax the nervous system. And then you can work on whatever might be challenging that child. So if there's something around learning that is really stressing them out, you want to change their environment to help bring them into a state of relaxation. And then you can start working on those challenges. Because we know we all learn best when we're relaxed and engaged, Mm -hmm. right? So we try and make the environment kind of relaxed and engaging. So all of the things that we do are in play. But then that way we don't have to do the drill and kill. We can just address what we need to address and it happens so much faster. Mm -hmm. It's so true. I mean, I have the same philosophy. Yeah. In my office, I chose blue for a reason. I was just thinking about this stuff. Because it's calming, right? The kids walk in and it's very calming in my office. And I do a lot of things through play also because I have a lot of games. Mm -hmm. And as I always say, there's low investment, high return with games. And I was just talking to a mom this morning and even though I push this kid, he still has so much fun and enjoys coming. And when he leaves, he's very energized. His mom says on Mondays when he comes, he's like pumped after he leaves. Mm. And it's exactly that. You have to be in an environment and a space that feels good. And he's more willing to put in the work then. Right. It makes so much sense. Yeah. You've gotten his nervous system in a state where he can't accept that information. And with somebody that he trusts too. Let's say the nervous system is in a fine state. What other sort of things are going to show up for learning? So again, these are the kids that their bodies are not prepared to learn. So they are unable to even just hold themselves up in a chair. They're wiggly. It's hard for them to hold a pencil, to hold a tool. There's also... Children who have bilateral integration issues really do struggle in the classroom. And we see the symptom of this is that they have difficulty coordinating the two sides of their body. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you need the two sides of your body to do everything in the classroom, to cut, to hold the piece of paper and to cut in a coordinated way, to even hold the paper and write or to erase. I've worked with a child years ago, I did an assessment on a child and the therapist who had been seeing the child you know, had said, oh, I've trained this child and his handwriting looks beautiful, on and on and on. But when it came down to it, the child, he knew to put his hand on the paper because he'd been trained to do it. He didn't have that natural automatic ability to hold the paper Hmm. when he was writing or erasing. So the paper would go everywhere. It would get a hole in it. It just slowed him down. Totally inefficient. Packing up your supplies, putting a piece of paper in a folder without it getting Oh, yeah. Zipping up your backpack. I mean, there's so many things when you have bilateral coordination issues that you just become really inefficient and slow in the classroom. And those are the kids that get labeled lazy. Mm -hmm. Lazy. Apathetic. Or even some of them, I think, maybe defiant. Yeah. Uh, You know, like, I told you to do this. And it's really because they can't. They can't. Or they just really 
can't figure out how to do it, or it's just uncomfortable mm -hmm. for some of our kids. So crossing midline is really difficult mm -hmm. for them. And so they avoid crossing midline, not on purpose. It's just something their brain does to try and compensate for an inefficiency that it has, but it makes them really slow and it affects the reading because they lose their place when they're tracking. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what you meant by crossing midline? We know what that means, but we want to make sure our audience knows too. Yeah. So midline is the midpoint of your body. If you drew a vertical line, you know, between your eyes and all the way down, that's your midline. And in your brain, it's when information crosses from one side of your brain to the other side, from one hemisphere to the other. And sometimes there's a little bit of a glitch or a hiccup in how that information transfers and the brain doesn't like the way it feels. So it avoids it. So these are kids, if they're doing mazes, maybe they only want to sit with their paper on one side of their body next to their dominant hand. They won't put it right in front of them. Hmm. If items are on one side of their desk and they have to transfer it to the other, instead of just crossing their body, say if there's a piece of paper on their right hand side and they have to move it to their left, instead of picking it up with their right hand and crossing it over to lay it down, they'll switch hands oh. and hand it, which that in and of itself is not a big deal right? If that was the only issue I saw, I would say, well, is it that big of a deal? But when a child is having a difficult time engaging and participating in the classroom, because they have these kind of delays making their work inefficient and frustrating, then I really do need to look at it. Oh my goodness. Or sitting sideways in a chair, right? Yeah. As you're sitting here talking, I have a client that I'm thinking about that I'll be seeing later today, we will be doing some activities on crossing the midline because it never occurred to me. She said sideways on the chairs. I've seen her do the hand thing. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And she struggles with reading mm -hmm. and finding her place on the page. How does it manifest with writing? If they're right-handed, they have a hard time starting at the left margin. Sometimes they want to just start in the middle of the paper. Yeah. Or they just move their paper all the way to their right-hand side so they can start at that margin. You might see it when they draw that it's only on one side of the paper. Sometimes, you know, with holding their paper down, erasing, manipulating any type of classroom material. It shows up in math, big time. Oh, huge. Especially with the visual spatial. Yeah, and it's really all a culprit of this vestibular proprioceptive system. And some of these kids, you see they have balance issues. The other issue we see is ocular motor issues that kids have a really hard time with tracking. Mm -hmm. And that's really back to the vestibular system because that system sends messages to the eyes to stabilize when your head is moving and to follow along. And sometimes that's really a struggle. It's like what we always say, which is when children are able to do something, they will. They will. They're not trying to frustrate us. They're not trying to be slow. They're not trying to be disobedient, certainly not before puberty, right? They still want to please. Yeah. And so we're hearing from an allied professional, a supplementary, complementary service that a lot of the things that we see on the day-to-day -day could have other underlying issues, which we may not have even thought of yet. If I wasn't an ed therapist, I would do what you do. It's so cool. Yeah. Oh, I'm so into it. I love it. Guys, mark the date it's and time. Fun. She's going back to school. I give it a year before she's like, reach, look, and sends me a program. Oh, I love it so much. It's too many years, but I love it. It is a great profession. I do love what I do. Yeah. So, okay. So we've talked about how it shows up in the classroom, but... 
Let's say if we are talking to teachers out there that might be listening. Mm -hmm. If you're talking to teachers, what would you like them to know? Yeah, thanks for that. I'd like them to know that there's some underlying challenges that this child's experiencing that's creating hurdles for them to learning. And then just what you said, that kids are pleasers. They want to do well. Nothing feels better than getting praise and doing well because you've worked hard and you deserve it. But a lot of the kids we see, they're working hard and they're not getting the praise that they deserve. 100%. And they're very intelligent. Yes. And so that's even more frustrating to them. Mm -hmm. A lot of the kids that I see, yeah, when I ask them what OT does for them, they say to me, they help my brain control my body or my brain communicate with my body better, which is just like, oh, you have felt so disconnected and so out of control. And so I'm so glad that we've done that for you. And the things that parents are telling us is that life is easier, meltdowns are less, kids are happier, things are getting done more efficiently. You know, when you have a family, you just want things to roll. Yeah. And you want them to roll smoothly and happily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so that's really what, at PlaySense, what I want to do for our families is really just help family life to go easier because it's hard enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it helps the whole family structure, which is the same thing that we say with ed therapy. Very often, I had a mom the other day that told me that I've been working on math and cooking a little bit, and her daughter cooked for the first time the other day. And she's 14. So that was like yeah. a huge thing. And mom was just so happy to just have that little win. And so that's where we're all similar, just getting the wins in because success definitely breeds success. Mm -hmm, for sure. So I wanted to go back to the meltdowns. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, parents just say tantrums, that their child is having tantrums about homework, tantrums about doing, you know, just about anything. But sometimes... It's not necessarily a tantrum. It's a sensory meltdown, right? So what is the difference? Well, I think you have to really go through a laundry list of questions to ask yourself about your child to know the difference for your child. So mm -hmm. first, you want to kind of put the lens on that this child wants to please and do well. That's the number one lens you need to put on. And then you need to ask yourself, is my child sick or getting sick? Is he hungry? Mm-hmm. Is he sleepy? What things in any child's world would throw him off? And actually any human being's world would throw them off. Yeah. Okay. And then layer that in with, okay, what am I asking them to do? And how hard is this challenge? And remembering that it's not about the chronological age if it's challenging. Right. Right. Because I think a lot of people just say, oh, well, he's seven. He should be able to do that by now. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. You know, so we see... Here at our clinic, a lot of kids struggle by the end of the session to put their shoes on, right? So we're working on dressing. We want to see kids put their shoes on, but there's a lot of times where kids are like, no, mommy's going to do it. Mm -hmm. Mommy will put my shoes on. And mommy's like, no, you put your shoes on. You can put your shoes on. And yeah, they can put their shoes on, but they've just been through an hour of OT and they've worked really hard. It's 530 and they're hungry. They've had a long day at school and they are not going to put their shoes on. <laughs> And that's not the time to ask because you know that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that to me is like a meltdown. Like I am exhausted. I am overwhelmed and I'm shutting down. Yeah. And that may not have any relationship to sensory needs. Mm -hmm. 
you know, most of the kids we see already, their nervous system is not the strongest. So yeah, those little things do throw them over more than others. So I think recognizing that, okay, my child has a weaker nervous system. And even though they could do it this morning, there's been a lot of things that have been layered onto this child by the end of the day. Yeah, their gas tank is empty. Mm-hmm. They're done. Okay, so that's one. And then, you know, we have these kids that just out of nowhere, they lose mm-hmm. it, right? And whatever it might be, that may be a sensory meltdown or a reaction to sensations that are in the environment that we might not be detecting because for whatever reason, their nervous system is in fight, flight, or fight. So it's turned on its protective sensors so that everything is heightened. And that child is experiencing something very different than what we're experiencing. And so that might be a sensory meltdown. Mm-hmm. In those cases, the best thing you can do is remove them as best you can and as safely as you can from a situation and decrease the sensory input, right? Give them deep pressure, slow rocking, turn down the lights, mitigate the sound, do what you can. You might be in the middle of Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the hardest part. But Disneyland has these wonderful nursing rooms, like their parenting rooms, and that's where you can go and they're ready for you. And they're quiet, they're cool, there's cold water, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a lot of things to kind of help. And a lot of times you just have to change the environment to help mitigate those sensory meltdowns. And it's not just them being defiant. That's what I want to get out there. It's not. It's not them being defiant because I think we have to honor that kids are having a different experience than adults. And any kid's nervous system is different than an adult's. And so our expectations cannot be that they can go through a full day of Disneyland without a meltdown. Yeah. It's not reasonable. Yeah. It's not a reasonable expectation. Or to ask your child to do something that's sort of challenging, but not really challenging at the end of a very long day that's been really challenging. Mm -hmm. So we need to adjust our expectations. And I know it sounds like I'm kind of like preaching from the ivory tower here, but I'm a parent too. I've made the same mistakes. I've like, you know, told my son to put his shoes on while he's like losing it. (laughs) So I've done the same thing. Yeah. But if we can do it, you know, one out of five times, we've done a better job. Yeah. Yeah. I think hearing and knowing that that could be the reason. And it's not just your kid sitting there saying, no, I don't want to do it because you told me to. Right. That it really is coming from a place of this is really challenging, even if they can't verbalize it. Yeah. Understanding them. And when we talk about meeting them where they're at, this is a prime moment for that. Yeah, exactly. You meet them where they're at. You lower your expectations. Have a plan. Yeah, have a plan. (laughs) For what you're going to do, not if, but when. Fair enough. And, you know, when that child is starting to ramp up, recognize that they're ramping up and start to ask yourself, like, okay, where is this going? And how can I get the train back on the track without like totally losing it? Mm-hmm. Is it really important that we put the shoes on? Yeah. Do they really have to have shoes on today? Because if he puts on his shoes for the next five days, he's still putting his shoes on. Right. Like he's going to lose the skill in yeah, one yeah, day. Yeah, totally. Or <laughs> is it the type of shoes? Right. Because I'm very sensitive to a lot of these sorts of feelings. Like, I get it. And so when I was little, like, wearing certain shoes, I didn't want to wear them. I would wear a different pair. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even if that shoe isn't appropriate for this moment, is it really the worst thing in the world if they don't wear that shoe to school today? 
Yeah. You know, I think sometimes we walk in with our rules and those little people have their own rules and they really just want to be comfortable. That's all they want to do. They want to be comfortable and do their jobs. Yeah. And I don't blame them. I want to be comfortable and do my job too. Me too. I want to wear flip-flops all day, every day, but that's not in the cards. (laughs) (laughs) It's not in the cards, but I would. (laughs) Yeah. I don't ever want to have to wear jeans or pants. Yeah. You don't like pants. I don't like shoes. No. No. (laughs) See, Stephanie, you should be an OT. I wear slippers every day. I would so be into it. (laughs) Steph, you have your own practice. You have your own business. I bless you with permission to wear slippers if that's what makes you feel comfortable. Why not? You have office slippers. Uh, Yeah, office slippers. I saw Annie last week. We went to a professional thing and I wore flats and I ended up wearing them from 10 a.m. until... 8 p.m. and I was dying. That's when you got to bring it's your own fault. You should have brought. I know it's my own fault. I forgot all day. I all I could think about was like how uncomfortable my feet were. (laughs) Do you ever take your shoes off in the office and walk around barefoot? Sometimes. Yeah, I do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then the kids see it and they're like, can I take my shoes off? And I'm like, of course you can. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of my kids go on the trampoline and some of them take off their shoes and some of them don't. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to each their own. Some feel more stable with shoes on. Some people need to be a little more grounded with less in yeah. between their skin. Yeah, mm-hmm. this has been unbelievably informative. Good. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I think that... Yeah, I could go on and on. Well, we'll have you back. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. We can do a part two. Yes, there you go. How do people connect with you if they want to connect with you, Annie? I'm on Instagram, uh, PlaySense Kids. And you can email me, Annie at PlaySenseKids.com. We're also on Facebook, PlaySense Kids. Your clinic is in Redondo Beach? Yes. And our website is PlaySenseKids.com. <laughs> There's a theme. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today.